Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that you want to speak to us this morning and just help us to constantly be listening and remembering that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone got their reminder from God in a text message. It's always handy. Guys, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Jack, and I worked here at Geraldton Baptist Church as the disciple trainer last year throughout 2021. It's my absolute pleasure to lead and be part of the Form Discipleship course that we run, and I was so excited uh, when Craig sent me an email and asked if I could come and speak to you this weekend. I'll be here until Tuesday when I get to share on form as well, which I can't wait for. It's always a pleasure coming back up. And as I was driving back, I was just like, oh, it's so good to be out of the city. I'm living in Perth now. And it's, it's lovely to be back up in Geraldton just for a weekend, all that space, all that time on the road to just think and reflect. And I'm carrying on our series, or your series that you've been running this morning, called The Good and Beautiful Life. Elijah, I've got a clicker, so I'll try that for the things. And if it doesn't work, I'll, uh, I'll need your help. But um, this morning, we've got a bit of a challenging passage to look through. And so I'm going to read it, and then I've got a bit of a disclaimer to share. Because those of you who know me, you know I like to joke around. You know I like to have a bit of fun as I preach This is probably going to be a morning where I can't do that. But to help me out, Reg very kindly sent me a text message yesterday and said, do you need a dad joke to start the sermon off? And I said, always. And so when I walk in the door this morning, Reg says to me, he says, okay, Jack, you're going to remember this. I said, well, I'll try. So here's the test. Can I remember it, Reg? He asked me, or I'm going to ask you guys, how many sheep does it take to make a jumper? Two? Two? Well, I would have said five, but I bet you didn't know that sheep could knit. (laughs) It's poor. (laughs) Is that right, Reg? Job done. Now, let's let's take a more serious note and, and turn to God's Word. So if you've got your Bibles on you this morning, it has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. I'm sorry. Just need that bit of light to to start. We're going to open up to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 27. I'll give you guys a moment, and then I'll, I'll, I'll take the reading. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow. Five verses with some really challenging, serious content. So before we start engaging with the text directly, I want to give you guys a brief disclaimer and share a quote with you. Firstly, I am no expert in these matters. 
I've wrestled with this topic for the last couple of weeks, and I stand here uh, before you knowing that there are depths to this topic, particularly divorce, that I will not be able to reach. I also haven't been through a divorce myself, and my parents are still married. I don't know the pain or hurt or struggle of divorce firsthand. Now, I'm sure, I know, I do know people who've gone through divorce, and I'm sure everyone else in this room knows someone who's gone through it as well. Similarly, I don't know firsthand the pain of adultery. I know something like it. I know heartbreak, but I don't know adultery. It's not something I've experienced. But Craig sent me some words earlier this week from John Stott, who's a well-known theologian and author, and I would like to share them with you and test the clicker. It'll help if I turn it on. No, Eli, could you go to the next slide, please, mate? And the next one. Back. Perfect. If you can read that, it might be a bit small. I'll read it out for you. John Stott wrote this. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain which many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. John Stott is one of many who will have spent much more time and effort wrestling with this topic than myself. But his reminder that Jesus' teaching is good and worth exploring is an encouragement to us as we explore the text and his words echo how I feel about approaching this passage and some of these subjects. So I will be trying to carry on with as much sensitivity and delicacy as I can while holding to the words of Scripture. Now I mentioned some things that I don't have much experience with. But the thing that I do have experience with is lust. I have struggled and do struggle with lust personally. I've journeyed alongside friends and people I've mentored who have and do struggle with lust as well. I've been inspired by the examples set by leaders who have helped me in my struggles with lust as they've shared the stories of their own struggles with lust. I'm highlighting lust here because it's lust that underpins these five verses. In some of your Bibles, your translation might have the heading of this, this first few verses as lust. It might be adultery. And the title of today's sermon is Learning to Live Without Lust. Now, I think they're placed next to each other in this section of the Sermon on the Mount for a reason, which I'll get into in just a moment. And then we'll get to see what they have to do with living the good and beautiful life. So let's take a step back and reflect on where we're at. 
We're a few verses into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Next uh, slide, please, Elijah. The Sermon on the Mount, a familiar kind of image. Over the last few weeks, you guys have been exploring the Beatitudes and then the section of the Sermon on the Mount about anger. And one of the key points that Craig has drawn out in his messages on these topics has been this. Jesus is explaining what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Those who are lesser are considered blessed, not because they are lesser or because of how they act, but because Jesus has made a way for them to be blessed in his kingdom. He has invited them into the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on to start addressing different commands from the Old Testament law handed down by Moses. Murder, adultery, divorce, retaliation, loving your neighbor. In each instance, Jesus actually raises the bar for us to meet in regards of of how we are to live in his kingdom. And as Craig pointed out, this side of heaven, meeting that standard perfectly is impossible. And without the leading of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. Part of the good news, though, is that God invites us to live in the ways of his kingdom now. And through that, he works in our hearts to help us live in those ways and move towards living in those ways through his Holy Spirit. So do not worry if these verses sound really hard and really challenging. You're not, you're not misunderstanding them. They are really hard and really challenging. But God has a plan for how to help us apply them and live in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus raises the bar for each thing in a, in a relatively simple way. For each of these Old Testament laws, he's addressing a kind of behavior problem, an action that was prohibited. Something external that we can point to and that it's quite easy to stay away from. It's simple enough not to kill someone else. It's simple enough, in theory, to not commit adultery. We understand that those things are not good and the Bible says they're not good and we shouldn't do them. But Jesus changes the game here and this is him fulfilling the law like he said he would back in verse 17 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He boils this external behavior down to the internal thought or feeling that seems to cause it. Murder is caused by anger and so he teaches against anger. It is there. Murder is the outward expression of the internal thing that is anger, whether that's a feeling or a thought or a mindset or an attitude. Adultery and divorce, very broadly speaking, are caused by lust. And so in this passage today, Jesus challenges lust. In verse 28, Jesus says that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Suddenly, it just got a lot harder for us to behave the right way. And, but that's what the Jewish leaders at the time would have been preaching the most. Do the right thing. Do the visible thing. Do the external thing that everybody can see. But don't worry so much about what's going on inside. Don't worry so much about what's going on beneath the surface. The surface. Can we go to the next slide, please, Eli? Murder and adultery are a bit like medical symptoms. You guys might be overly familiar with this picture of COVID symptoms. Symptoms tell us that there's a problem in our body and they can help us to diagnose the problem underneath. 
And while the symptoms are bad and usually unpleasant, the symptoms are not actually the cause of the problem itself. And just treating the symptoms doesn't always help the underlying issue. For that, we need the right diagnosis. And here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus is diagnosing what causes sinful acts like murder and adultery, anger and lust. And this is a part of our brokenness, of our sinful nature, a direct result of the fall. But it's this nature that in the kingdom of heaven that he wants to heal. He wants us to move towards being healed of this sinful nature. This is the invitation into the good and beautiful life, is to move away from these sinful ways and move towards the ways of the kingdom of heaven. So here comes Jesus to challenge these behaviors and these attitudes and cast a vision for life in the kingdom of heaven where we'll be free from these heart issues like lust. But we're not there yet. The complete healing will take time and we still struggle with them today. Until then, we have to learn to live without lust. So let's examine lust a bit deeper so we know what we're dealing with and then perhaps we can look at how to deal with it. Jesus specifically uses the words lustful intent in my translation of the Bible. That's the ESV. But in the NIV, it's translated as lustfully. He is not just talking about just looking at a woman or a man. He is talking about looking at them with lust. Lust is translated here as the Greek word epithumeo. Could we have the next slide, please? Which means to desire or lust after. And it is used multiple times throughout the Bible in phrases like I long for or covet or lust after or set the heart upon. And generally, it seems to be about desiring a particular thing to do or to have. So lust is something that reduces a person or a thing to effectively being just a thing that we can have or do something with. It objectifies them and does not honor or respect the person who is being looked at with lust. It's not how Christ would call us to live in the ways of his kingdom. So what does looking at someone with lust actually look like? John Brian Smith puts it like this. One day I was walking on the beach with my brother engaged in a deep conversation about God. A beautiful young woman in a bikini was walking in our direction and of course we both noticed her. When she passed by we looked at each other and said, wow, now have we sinned at that point? I don't think so. If we had not noticed we would not be sexual persons. The response was completely acceptable in my view. Now, had we turned and followed her, focusing our eyes on her body, dreaming of a sexual encounter with her, we would have sinned. We would have crossed over from simple attraction to epithumia, but we didn't. It's helpful that we make this distinction between acknowledging someone's attractiveness in passing, which is not lustful or wrong. God has created us as beings with, with a sex drive. We will be attracted to people. We will notice attractive features, both physical and non-physical, because God has designed us 
to be sexual people within the safety and blessing of the covenant of marriage. The problem is when we linger on that passing glance, when we let it sit in our minds, dwelling on it and letting it take hold of our desires. I'm not married yet, but I'm engaged. And I think Heather, my fiance, is very attractive. She's going to listen to the podcast on Wednesday and hate that I said that. But it's true. She's very attractive. I, at least I find her very attractive. And the challenge for me as an engaged man, as we move towards marriage, as we look forward to what marriage means and holds for us, the challenge there is not to fall into lust because I could lust after her just as easily, perhaps even more so than I could over an attractive person I see down the beach. And I bring this up because I think when we say the words lust, we do think of it conjures particular images to mind that aren't always helpful. We think it's perhaps just an issue for men, maybe just for single men who are lonely. And that might be true in some cases, but not all. Lust is a problem, I would say, for most men and also for most women. Even though in this passage Jesus is particularly highlighting men, he was talking to an audience of mostly men, so for his audience it was more relevant that he was addressing men looking at women, not women looking at men. And because all of us are susceptible to lust within our heart, with, with setting our hearts upon something, upon desiring something in a way that is selfish, that only meets our own wants and desires. The world is constantly against us in this struggle. Living without lust today is so hard because we live in a world that says sex is okay and it's normalized. Our TV shows and our movies constantly feature sexual scenes or depictions of sex, usually happening outside of the boundary of marriage. Most of society also thinks that pornography is okay. I've got some statistics um, from some recently conducted surveys that, from the American church that might shock you. 68% of church-going men view porn on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 87% of Christian women have watched porn. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB, which is Major League Baseball, combined. It's also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, which are huge um, corporations and media broadcasters. It holds such a place in our society, and it affects so many people just in the church. Now, obviously, they haven't, in the research, they haven't gone and asked every individual these questions. They've taken a sample size. But we can apply things from a smaller sample size and see the trend in the data. This probably wouldn't be too different if Australian people took the same research. And if this is the challenge inside the church, Imagine how more prevalent it is outside the church as well. And what we find is that, so lust, 
is an issue that affects so, so many people. It is not something that is just for a small minority to wrestle with and deal with. It's actually something all of us will probably have to wrestle with at some point in our lives. And we can point to something like pornography because it's shocking. And we can point at it and say, that's evil. It's insidious. But it's not just images of people that we can lust after. It can also be, we can also objectify the ideas of people. Take romance novels. Stories which center around an impossibly perfect man coming to sweep the heroine off her feet. And that heroine is usually a character that is written as a stand-in for the reader. A character that it's easy for the reader to relate to and see themselves in their situation. To want what they want and desire what they desire. That is why they are written and they sell loads of books every year. The romance novel genre pumps out stories written all the time and the vast majority of their readers are women. Why do they read those books? It might be for a nice story, but they're known. Mills and Boone sometimes have their, their steamy scenes. What I'm trying to illustrate here is that we live in a society where this is normalized beyond belief, where society says lust is okay and we lose sight of love. We live in a society where the appetites of our lust are only fed and strengthened. So to live without lust is a countercultural idea that we need to be on the front foot of. We need to be actively going up against it. John Brian Smith, who I quoted before, writes this. Adultery implies fulfilling my desire is more important than fulfilling my commitment. I don't care if I hurt others. Right now, all I care about is me. The same is true of lust. Valuing the other as a sacred being is tossed aside. Jesus brilliantly gets to the heart of the matter. He invites us into the kingdom in order to become new people, people who value and respect others. So how do we respond? We've had a look at lust, a look at the problems it can cause. And I'm sure some of you might know of situations in your mind that that, that you are aware of, where you see the damage that an attitude of lust can cause. The answer that Jesus gives us in the passage is to cut off our hands or pluck out our eyes. Should we actually do that to deal with our sin? Eli, could we go to the next slide, please? If we do that, we might end up looking like this guy. If any of you have seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, this is the Black Knight who continually gets his limbs cut off and, and keeps fighting King Arthur. I don't think in many recollections of history that there are too many disciples that went about life looking like this. I don't think Jesus is actually saying we need to cut off our hand or cut off our leg or gouge out our eye to deal with sin. We don't read of the disciples doing that after this sermon. We get a much larger snapshot of the early church, and nothing like that is recorded. So we can't take that as a literal solution to the problem. Let's be honest. Lust is not in our hands. It's not even in our eyes. It's in our hearts, and it's in our minds. Because Jesus is challenging the religious norms of the day, 
which is dealing with the external problems or doing things to be visible and to be seen and not dealing with the internal issues, we know that we know that he actually wants to deal with our hearts. He promises to give us a new heart. He wants to heal us and see us be made into people that live in his kingdom. And so as we think about how we, how we move forward, as we think about how we live without lust, I stand here as someone who I can't say that I have perfectly learned how to live without lust. It is something that I still wrestle with to this day. And I'm sure most of you might be able to nod along with me, although I won't ask you to. The simple matter of it all is that if we're going to live without lust, we have to address one of the really harsh realities. Lust is so prevalent in our society because I think deep down in our heart of hearts, Sometimes we enjoy it. And if we want to live without it, we have to confront that fact and choose away from it. Craig spoke about the idea of repentance. Jesus called people to repent and believe. The metanoia, changing of the mind, a changing of the heart towards God's ways. But for that change to take place, it's a, it's a doing word, it's a verb we actually have to make that choice and we actually have to want it. We have to desperately want to be free of this thing that's inside us. And as I talk about what we have to do, I don't want to labor and come across saying that we have to do this and we have to do that. It's not so much about what we do. I wanted to focus on what at the start of this sermon, I wanted you to focus on a reason you know God loves you because I don't want you to hear condemnation as I speak. I wanted you guys to understand that you are loved and that as Christians, your identity is as loved children of God. No matter what your struggle and your journey is at this point in time, he loves you and his invitation into the kingdom of heaven is open. You just have to accept the invitation. I have three, three things that might help us as we think about how we can live without lust. Eli, the next slide, please. I would say they are prayer, purity, and permission. Three points, three Ps. Hopefully that'll stick in your mind. And I'm not going to spend too long on this because it's an ongoing journey. The Holy Spirit dwells inside us and is constantly working to guide us and lead us towards His ways. If we accept God's invitation to be his kingdom people, we partner with the Holy Spirit and the work he is doing over time to heal the things that need to be healed and be set free from the things that hold us, like anger, like lust. And so I think the first big thing is prayer. A few years ago, in 2014, when I was started on form over in the UK. That was a year where I really had to wrestle with and challenge the lust in my life, at least to begin that journey. Because until that point, it was something I struggled with in, in complete secret. It was something I didn't tell anyone about. 
it was just something I lived with and I did and I'm quite ashamed of it. But as I, want, as I was being understood more of God's love for me in that year, I knew this was something I had to deal with. To live in his ways, I had to deal with this issue that was in my heart. And the first thing that I had to do on that year to start journeying with it was to pray. I had to confront myself and say, Lord, there's something inside me that's really uncomfortable and it's not right. There's a behavior that's not good, but that's only a symptom of something deeper. Lord, I need you to come and heal my heart to at least begin that process and give me the strength I need to resist the temptations of lust. And I think prayer is where we do the heavy lifting in life. If there are things that are beyond us, if there are things that seem too big for us to deal with, prayer is where we get to bring them before a loving, kind and merciful God and ask for his help and to receive it. Not only that, as an individual, get someone else to pray for you. The second P is purity. And I think this one is a practical thing. It focuses far more on what we are consuming. I talked about the world, the things we watch on TV, the books we might read, other things that we can consume that might be unhelpful to us as we seek to live without lust. We need to choose purity instead. And that doesn't mean we don't watch things because they're sinful. We don't watch things because they might actually not be helpful for our hearts. They might not be helpful for us. And so for you, that's a case-by-case basis. What is good for me to watch? What leads my thoughts in a particular way? And what leads me away from God when I watch it and consume it? It might, be, it might, some, it might just be romance films. It might be TV shows that depict um, sex outside of marriage as a normal and celebrated thing. But we have to pursue this kind of purity as we go through life. And we're not going to get it right. We're not going to get any of this right 100% of the time before we're with him in heaven. But as we seek to live in the ways of the kingdom of heaven now, we have to do our best to go after it. And the final P is permission. That's permission to God and the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to help set us free from these issues. It's also permission to people around us who we trust and feel safe with to journey with us. I mentioned that on form that was when I started this journey and I said prayer was the thing that kicked it off. The other thing that kicked it off was my huddle leader. He's a really wonderful man. His first name is Tim and I won't tell you any more details about it than that. But we all gathered together as, as, as a group of men who were going to journey with each other throughout the year. And he decided that the best way to set the bar for us as, as disciples this year in dealing with some of the serious problems that particularly young men have to deal with was that he would share with us his failings with lust. And in doing so, he gave us permission to share our struggles And it created an environment where we could share openly with each other in a safe and prayerful space, knowing that 
we were loved and respected and supported by these individuals so that we could journey together against the issue of lust, among other things that we journeyed with on the form year. Without a leader like that, I wouldn't have realised that actually we need to be able to bring things into the light and make, things, make ourselves vulnerable to actually allow God to do the work. Sometimes we can just think that God will sort of magically fix things um, supernaturally, and he can do that sometimes, but not in all cases. That's not everybody's lived experience. Sometimes God works in our lives through those around us, through our communities. One of the, the very best tools I have found in combating this struggle in my life is having people in my life who I can be accountable to, who can ask me questions about how I'm going, who I've given permission to ask the tough questions and to check in on me and see how I'm going. I've, one of my friends from that huddle, we've been, we call every two weeks and have done so for the last six or seven years, often asking ourselves questions about this kind of struggle because we know it's a real challenge. Our attitudes, how we act, how we behave, how we let that do things or how we don't let it do things. And we celebrate the victories and seek to encourage each other to live the good and beautiful life that Jesus has set before us. Prayer, purity, and permission. Permission to share, permission to let others share, and permission to let others ask you questions. I want to share a couple of quotes from my very favorite author, C.S. Lewis, to finish, and then I'll pray. This has been a tough sermon to, to deliver, and I'm sure a tough one to listen to for you guys. So I hope to leave you with a sense of hope. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And one more quote. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward of your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven 
is already inside you. Each person here is invited to start living in the ways of the kingdom of heaven. That is part of this good and beautiful life that Jesus invites us to. If there have been things that have been said in this sermon that you would like to talk to me personally about, I'm happy to answer any questions um, and I'm happy to be frank and honest, but the pulpit is not the place for that. I'm happy to have a a more one-on-one conversation to answer things like that. And if there are things that have challenged you and struggled inside you, you might need to seek prayer afterwards as well. I'm sure there are people in your lives who you know who you can trust, who can pray for you, who can give advice, wisdom and counsel in some of these sensitive and difficult areas. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you that the work you seek to do in the lives of your people is to to not just patch up things and, and, and do a just enough job. You don't just want to fix the external outward problems, Lord, but you want to fix the internal things. You want to fix the entire person and create them into a whole new being, transformed by your spirit and living in your ways, Lord. Lord, as we we wrestle with the invitation to the good and beautiful life and what that might mean in our lives now, the things we might have to let go of or the things we might need to say yes to instead, Lord, and choose into your ways. I ask, Father, that you'll be stirring something in the the hearts and minds of everyone here in this room as a result of, of these words, Lord. We pray that you will aid us and strengthen us through the power of your Holy Spirit as we seek to be a people who are set apart for you, Lord, who don't walk in the ways of the world, but who who live a life without lust, without anger. Lord, help us as we learn what it means to live in those ways and to live as your people in greater and greater freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.